Great singing all day today. If you'd open your Bibles to Micah 7, we come to the finale of the book of Micah. Next Sunday night, we're going to be introducing to you the book of Nahum. As near as I can tell, because I pretty much have it done in preparation, it'll take about seven weeks. And then I'm working on Zephaniah to follow that. You're going to see an interesting chronology development here because after Micah, where Micah has been saying, we're seeing these people that are ruthless, that are leading people away from the Lord. They're in religious and political and economic leadership, and they're not interested in leading people in the things of God. And Micah has concluded as we've gone through the book that God has sovereignly permitted them to be there. Now Nahum basically says, here's what God does to them once he's done using them. And you're going to find that a fascinating journey when we go through that book. Now tonight we begin at verse 14 of Micah 7. Follow along as I read the scriptures. Micah is kind of talking to the Lord. He's confessing the fact that he's sinned. He's confessing the fact that the nation has sinned. And he says in verse 14, Shepherd your people with your scepter, the flock of your possession, which dwells by itself in the woodland, in the midst of a fruitful field. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead, as in the days of old, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt. I will show you miracles. Nations will see and be ashamed of all their might. They will put their hand on their mouth, their ears will be deaf, they will lick the dust like serpent, like reptiles of the earth. They will come trembling out of their fortresses to the Lord our God. They will come in dread and they will be afraid before you. Who is a God like you? Now, he's going to use a series of different words describing sin. And I'll point them out to you as we read it. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity? That's avon in Hebrew. That talks about twisted, perverted stuff. And he passes over rebellious acts. That's Peshah. And that is talking about blatant rebellion acts against the Lord. Rebellious act of the remnant of his possession. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities, we're back to that word avon again, underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins, there's kata in Hebrew, which is every time people have missed the mark and have fallen short of the righteousness of God, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your inspired scriptures. It's a wonderful privilege to have in the English language your inspired word. We thank you for it. We thank you for this book of Micah and how you've preserved it and for the wonderful honor we've had of going through it, Lord. I pray that you would just minister to our minds and hearts tonight as we journey through the finale of this book, this great prophetic writing, and we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this book of Micah has been riveting. Micah was basically a small-town prophet. That's what we know about him. And being a prophet, he did get direct revelatory messages from God to go to the people and set forth exactly what God wanted him to set forth. And he also had the ability to foretell the future. And he went to big capital cities like Samaria and Israel and Jerusalem and Judah. He went to those big capital cities and he confronted the political and religious leaders of the world. He told them, you're leading people away from God. You're telling them things that aren't true. You're leading them away from the Lord. You're leading them away from the word. And you're leading them straight into judgment. That's what Micah went and told them all. 
He warned them that you need to start using your power and authority to point people in God's righteous and just ways, and they didn't do it. They didn't do it. They didn't listen to him. So judgment came down on Israel in 722 B.C. He brought Assyria into Samaria. She destroyed it. In 586 B.C., he brought Babylon into Jerusalem, and she destroyed that. In the process of all of this, God was literally tracking down people that were not responding to him, and in some of the cases, as we've seen, he's killing them. He's tracking down his own people. They had made mockery of him and mockery of his word to the point that he said, I've seen enough of this, I've had enough of this, and I'm going to do something about it. So God sent chastising judgment. And Micah knew that. Micah knew that. That's why he prayed. As we saw last time, he was praying about his sin. He was praying about the people's sin. And he realized that God's in the process of judging people. And I think, ladies and gentlemen, it is certainly conceivable that we could be in the process of being judged by the Lord Right here. I think that is very probable in what we just look around and look what we see in the evil that's permeating the world. But even when God did that, he was tracking down his own people that weren't responding to him. He still cared about them. In fact, it's far better to be in a covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ than not to be. Even if you're being chastised. It's far better to be a believer, even if God is disciplining us, rather than not be a believer. Why? Because eventually, God is going to shift his sovereign focus from the chastisement of his people to the destruction of his enemies, and he's going to turn things around and bless his people. Now, Micah had said earlier in this chapter, God's people may fall. In fact, he brought that out in verse 8 of the chapter. I'll fall now and then, but I also am going to get back up. Yeah, God's people may fall, but they will rise again. They may go through dark times, but they will come out and see light again. And that's what Micah wanted to communicate to the people as he wraps up this incredible little prophetic book that he wrote. What he says here is God promises Israel that one day he will miraculously bless Israel He will forgive Israel, he will restore Israel, he will use Israel greater than he did in the days of old. Now the future restoration of Israel is all based on what God promises he's going to do in his word. It's all based on grace too. Because as you'll see, she doesn't deserve this. Just the words he uses for sin would indicate she doesn't deserve this. So this is all based on grace. Micah had established the pathetic situation that existed in the nation. He graphically described it in the previous chapters. The nation was being run by people that weren't interested in God or his word. They were political, religious business leaders. They weaved together plans to get rich. They were basically doing things that were contrary to the word of God. And as a result, God got fed up with them and Micah warned them you're going to be judged of God so after he's concluded all of those statements that we've seen him make in this book he wraps this up and we can make eight final observations the first one is God will shepherd his people verse 14 shepherd your people with your scepter now Micah is really this is part of a prayer that he's talking to the Lord about God shepherd your people And the idea of shepherding your people certainly is something that had been seen many times in the scripture, that image. In fact, David said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And that shepherd that he's looking for, that he wants to come, he's already predicted in Micah chapter 4, he's going to come from Bethlehem. 
The shepherd who's going to come, who's going to be able to do the things for the people of God, will be born in Bethlehem. God himself is going to be here in the person of Jesus Christ and literally is going to shepherd the people of Israel. They are his flock. And there will be no more corrupt leaders to lead Israel in the political world, religious world, or business world. Ever again, they will never again exist, but the divine shepherd will be here. Now, he says, shepherd your people with your scepter. And the word scepter is Shabbat in Hebrew. It's a particular word that would indicate that this is the complete type of shepherding package that a good shepherd does with a staff or with a rod or with a stick. He protects the flock. He provides for the flock. He comforts the flock. He directs the flock. If need be, he supports the flock. He certainly is involved in all of the shepherding areas that a shepherd would be involved in. And when Micah says, we need the shepherd to come with a scepter, he's basically saying, we need you to come back here and take things over. And that's what we need. Only we need Jesus Christ to come back and take us out of here. As you'll see tonight, this is specifically aimed at Israel, but there's tremendous application that we will be able to make for this. He will shepherd his people with his scepter. Secondly, he will shepherd his flock which he possesses. He says in verse 14, the flock of your possessions. God's people are God's possessions. All we know that all of us will know and all the people will know that this is the possession of God. And you'll notice the text says the possession which dwells itself in the woodland. That would seem to suggest that when the shepherd comes, they're going to be hiding out in woodland areas, wilderness areas, which is consistent with what we learn in the book of Revelation. And it's also consistent with other prophetic passages that we see in the Old Testament because during the tribulation, the Antichrist is going to have an extermination edict that he's going to level against Israel and that flock that he's going to come back to possess when this actually is occurring, will be a flock that will be hiding. They'll be hiding in woodland areas. This is a literal prediction of what things are going to be like when the shepherd does come. The third fact is he will shepherd his flock in fruitful plush places. Now I find verse 14 interesting. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. Now that's fascinating. Because what that tells us is God is going to bless his people when he's shepherding them, and they aren't going to have to scrimp. They're going to be led to plush, fruitful existences in every possible way. And by naming Bashan and Gilead, he's basically telling us they're going to have the totality of all that land. You see, Bashan was east of the Jordan. It's modern-day Syria. And Gilead is east of the Jordan. It's modern-day Jordan. So what God is basically saying here, or Micah is basically predicting here, is when the shepherd gets back here, you're going to enjoy not only plush existence, a fruitful existence. These areas were known for their rich, productive land, but you're also going to have the totality of all the land. God's going to have his hand on you. You will have all the dimensions of the promised land that have been given to you, and you will be in that land, and you will have a land that blossoms like a rose. She doesn't have that now. In fact, she doesn't have the land known as Bashan. The fact of the matter is Assyria has it. And she doesn't have the land known as Gilead. She doesn't have control of that because that is controlled by Jordan. In other words, those two nations that she's supposed to have one day are Arab-controlled. And what Micah's predicting here is there'll come a day when you will be in that land, you'll enjoy the totality of it, and you will enjoy the rich blessings of the land. 
And then he says, it'll be like it was in the days of old. Back in the days of old, when all the blessings of God were on the nation, they had a relationship with God that featured just the blessings of God every day, the presence of God every day. That nation was like no other nation in the world. We've never had that in this country, in the history of this nation. We've never actually had the visible presence of God in this nation the way it was with the nation Israel. And what Micah is saying is it's going to be that way again. God will specifically, physically display himself with that nation again when that shepherd comes to shepherd his flock. So there's the first observation. The second final observation is he's going to do miracles for national Israel. Verse 15, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I'll show you miracles. Now we know that hasn't happened yet because Any time that Israel has had the privilege of going back to the land, there have not been those kind of miracles happen. For example, when they were, after 70 years of Babylonian captivity, allowed to go back to the land, they did go back to the land. They went back to the land, and they were able to rebuild the city and rebuild the temple and rebuild worship again, but there were no miraculous things that happened there. Then when Britain turned the land back over to Israel in 1948, and the people of Israel started going back. They didn't see spectacular miracles. I mean, they did realize that they thought God was moving to allow them to have a national land again, which was a fraction of what they should have had, but they did get some of the land because Britain turned it over to Israel as a national place where they could live. But there were no dramatic miracles there. What's described here when this happens is God says, I want you to understand Everybody's going to see a miraculous deliverance here. I'm going to take that nation and do many different kinds of miracles for Israel like I did when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I'm going to do spectacular things. I'm going to do miraculous things that only I will do for Israel. I'll not do this for any other nation in the world. Now, when we went through our study of miracles... During the days of Moses and Joshua, we cataloged about 39, 39 miracles that were done. Things like plagues. God hasn't had a guy walk in and say, okay, now here's the plague that's going to hit you tomorrow. That only happened for Israel. It hasn't happened for any other nation. How about parting the sea? I mean, you can go to any lake you want, any sea you want. God isn't going to part it. He only did that for Israel. How about manna coming from heaven? I mean, that was something that God only did for Israel. How about water coming out of a rock in a wilderness area? I mean, a couple of times he did that, where water just flowed out of a rock. Then he parted the Jordan so they could cross the Jordan and go into the promised land. And then how about this one? You get into a battle, you just walk around, blow trumpets, and the walls of Jericho fall down. Now, those are just a few of the miracles that God did for the nation Israel. And he said, I'm going to do that stuff again. When my shepherd comes to give you all the blessings of the land, you're going to see me do those kinds of things again. We know during the tribulation, 144,000 Jewish men will be specifically sealed by God. They'll be able to do miraculous kinds of things. We're going to have two prophets, according to Revelation chapter 11, that will actually be in Jerusalem. They'll be able to call things down from heaven, fire down from heaven. I mean, they're going to be able to do miraculous kinds of things. And Joel predicted, just before Jesus Christ returns in all of his glory that God's going to pour out his spirit again there'll be some very unusual miraculous things and then at the end of the great tribulation we saw it in revelation Jesus Christ comes back in all of his glory he's going to take his angels 
They're going to gather those Jewish people from the north, south, east, and west. And Israel will miraculously be seen once again as the nation of God. God said, I want you to know, things look dark now. You've got some miracles coming. And for us who are in the church age, we're not looking for land in the Middle East. We are looking for the rapture of the church. And so when things turn dark, just remember God says, I want you to know I'm going to come get you up and take you into the sky. Which brings us to the third observation. God will cause nations to be ashamed. Look at verse 16. Nations will see and be ashamed of all their might. They will put their hand on their mouth. Their ears will be deaf. This is proof right here. This has never happened right to tonight. I mean, you don't have people ashamed of the fact they speak out against Israel. In fact, that's a hobby for most people. It's not uncommon for nations to speak out against Israel. What is uncommon is when a nation supports Israel. But what is predicted here is there will come a time when all those nations that demeaned Israel, all those churches that demeaned Israel, all of those individuals that demeaned Israel, they're going to be ashamed of themselves. God said, I'm going to do a spectacular thing for my people, and they're going to see the spectacular miracles that I'm going to do for Israel, and it's going to leave them speechless. It will leave them dumbfounded. And the word shame, bosh, is a Hebrew word that means they'll be not only shamed, they'll be humiliated. The color like will go out of their face. They're going to be pale. They'll be ashamed of what they did to Israel. They'll be ashamed at what they said about Israel. They'll be ashamed at what they listened to other people say about Israel. Those nations put their trust in their own might. They put their trust in their own military, their own ability to make deals with other nations, military deals with other nations. They didn't put their trust in the Lord, especially when it came to Israel. There were a lot of plots and plans behind the scenes to destroy her. Nations have threatened Israel. They've intimidated Israel. They've said horrible things about Israel. God said, I'll shut their mouths. When I come back and settle this thing, never again will nations utter one negative word about the nation Israel. And God said, I'll make them totally ashamed. They'll be ashamed of what they said with their mouths. They'll be ashamed of what they listened to with their ears. Which brings us to the fourth observation. He'll cause the nations to be humbled. Verse 17, they will lick the dust like a serpent, like reptiles of the earth. They will come trembling out of their fortresses to the Lord our God. They will come in dread, and they will be afraid before you. What is described here is the total humiliation of Gentile nations who made fun of Israel. And I love what one commentator said about this. One commentator said, has this ever happened anywhere in history? I mean, has this ever happened anywhere in history where nations were so ashamed of what they said about Israel and what they listened to about Israel that they came crawling to Israel like a serpent in dust? Has that ever happened? And the answer is no. No, it hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen. What is predicted here is there will be three humble responses the nations will have. Number one, they're going to crawl before God and before Israel. Verse 19, they'll lick the dust like a serpent, like reptiles of the earth. 
You know, I read that statement that Paul makes in Philippians where he says, every knee shall bow, and then I read this statement here that Micah makes, and I'm thinking, you know, when they get down before the Lord, they might be in a crawling position. Because Paul said every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everybody is going to bow. And that is in a context of not just bowing in the church, but a context of every knee bowing and people who didn't even want to bow. What is predicted here is God's going to humble the serpentine nations who made a mockery of Israel to the point that they're going to be crawling in the dust like a snake. They'll be like dust. Secondly, they'll tremble before the Lord. He says in verse 17, they will come trembling out of their fortresses. These nations that thought they were so powerful will come before the Lord to Israel shaking. No matter how strong they thought they were at one time, they'll come before God and Israel and they will be trembling because they are going to realize We're about to appear before the Lord God who just did all the miracles we saw. I mean, that tribulation is going to be a scary place. And nations that are left and survive that are going to have seen God do some amazing things, the likes of which the world has never seen. Read about it in Revelation 6 to 19. It's scary stuff in there. And these nations are going to realize we have to face this God in Israel. We've been making mockery of Israel. We tried to exterminate Israel. Now we have to go face God in Israel and they'll come trembling. Thirdly, they'll be afraid before God. Verse 17 says, they will be afraid before you. When we sin, I really hope we're afraid of what God might do. I hope we have that perspective of it. In fact, when we sin, I hope we are so afraid of what God might do that we run to him in confession. Instantly, immediately. You don't want that to fester. Because when we have this kind of attitude toward the Lord, and these nations have been sinning against God, they had been sinning against the Lord, and they obviously had no fear of God as they were sinning against the Lord, they obviously come to the realization, we're going to face this God and we are afraid. And I'll just say this to you. If you can persistently pursue sin and you're not afraid of what God might do to you, there's something wrong with your spirituality. If sin is so a part of your world and existence that it no longer phases you anymore, boy, if I were you, I'd think real soberly about, yeah, I'm going to face God. Because these nations are going to come before the Lord and they'll be afraid before him. Now the fifth observation is God will forgive Israel. Two of the most powerful verses you'll ever read. Who is a God like you, who pardons iniquity, passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Who is like the God of the Bible? No one. Who is like the God of Israel? No one. He is an incomparable God. There's no being like him. There's no being that has ever done so much for Israel who can do so much for Israel. 
And I want to just say that to you, too, as an individual. There is no one else who can care for you and do for you what God can. You'll never go wrong by turning your life completely over to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no one who can care for you or do for you what God can, if you let him do it. Now, the future blessings that will come to Israel are totally and completely based on the grace of God. We can see that just by the words that he uses here. So by virtue of the fact that God is going to bless this nation and forgive this nation is a pure grace. And the text is clear to point out that God is going to do these things for Israel, not because she's been a faithful, godly nation. In fact, that's the reason she was going through the difficulty. She hadn't been a faithful and godly nation. But these verses prove that iniquity and sins and rebellious acts, when people have done things against God, have occurred in their lives many, many times. They've missed the mark many, many times. And yet, in spite of that, Micah says, here are eight future realities for us. Who is like God? Reality number one, he will pardon iniquity. Who's like God who would do that? All of the intentional, twisted, distorted things that we've ever done. Who's like a God who would pardon that? Which means, who would actually take the twisted things that we've done, lift them off from us? And the word pardon actually has the Hebrew meaning of avon, lift it off of us, put it on himself, and remove it and take it away. Who's like that? What other person could do that for us? Lift our sin, lift the burdens that we have because of the sin, take the guilt, lift it up and take it away. Who's like that? God. Secondly, God will pass over rebellious acts. That's what he says in verse 18, and he passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession. The rebellious acts, pesha, it refers to transgressions where we've walked off the path of God. We've revolted against God and his word. And when he says he'll pass over them, he basically is causing them to vanish. In fact, the word pass over has an interesting flair to it. It's like this particular word would indicate you pass through something, you get to the other side of it, and then it's gone because it's behind you. It would be like you cross a creek or you cross a river and you make it to the other side. You've got that behind you and it's gone. And Micah says, who can do that with our transgressions? Who can do that with our rebellion? Actually, have us get to the other side of it so that it's gone. Our God can do that. Thirdly, God will not be angry with his people. Verse 18 The text says, he does not retain his anger forever. Now, the word anger is a word that does mean at times God's nostrils can flare. And when it reaches this level, it is deserved. God does not get angry quickly or easily. He's a patient God, but he does have an angry side to it. And whenever God decides he's going to get angry, it is just anger. And what he says here is, God's not going to have that side to him with his people forever. Well, who could do that? Who could actually, because of our twisted things we've done in life, because of the transgressions of walking away from the word of God and the righteousness of God that have made him angry so that his nostrils flare because of what we've done, 
Who in the world could possibly forgive us like that? God. Who's like God? No one. No one. The fourth reality is he'll delight in his people. Understand what he's saying here. But he delights in unchanging love. God says, I will delight in the same people I had to discipline. I will delight in the same people that I had to judge. Why? Because I'm taking them on the other side of it. In other words, I ain't let them go through dark times when they get out of a right relationship with me. I let them go through some lonely, dark times, but I'm going to take them to the other side of it. When we get to that other side, I'll delight in them forever. The fifth reality is God will always love his people. He delights in unchanging love. God cannot ever stop loving his people. He may get angry, but in his anger, he always has a love for his people. Who's a God like that? The God of the Bible. Then he'll have compassion on his people. Verse 19, he will again have compassion on us. He's talking about the fact that I will have this deep, heartfelt passion from within that would want them to be in a relationship with me, even though they're helpless and hopeless because of the things they've done. I will show my compassion on them. And then he says in reality number 7 in verse 19, I will stamp out all iniquity of my people. He says in verse 19, he will tread our iniquities underfoot. Iniquities, plural. He's going to stamp out the avon, the twisted, the perverted things. He will stamp out forever, never to be seen again. Now, here is where the New Testament theology becomes critical. The one who actually can stamp the sin out is Jesus Christ on the cross. So, if Israel would have accepted Jesus Christ, who would have gone to that cross for them, and then three days later would have risen up and given them the kingdom, if they would have accepted him the first time, they would have a wonderful relationship with the Lord, but they didn't do it. But the promise here is that through that work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's the only one who can stamp out this, that's the only one who can stamp out iniquity so that it never surfaces again. The only one who can do that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the promise is he's going to take that nation, regather that nation, and he's going to stamp out all iniquity. It'll never surface again. And then he says, in wrapping that up, I'll cast away all their sins. Notice what he says at the end of verse 19. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. It's the word kata in Hebrew, which talks about any time my people have missed the mark. And he's talking to the remnant, by the way. He's talking to people who are believers. He's saying, any time my people have missed the mark, I'm going to take that, all of them, all of them. And he stresses that. I'll cast all of their sins into the depths of the sea. Now, the beauty of this is that people can have that done right now in the mind of God through Jesus Christ. But that's the only one who can give it to them. Who is a God like this? There is no other God like this. Then he says, I will give truth to my people. Verse 20, you will give truth to Jacob. Israel someday is going to have the truth of God. 
If you were to say to anybody in the world today, where can you go for the best Bible teaching in the world? I guarantee you, nobody would say Israel. Nobody would say, go to Jerusalem. They'll give you the greatest Bible expositions you'll ever hear from the Old and the New Testament. They jump over things in the Bible. They don't even handle all things. My brother, who used to work for a Jewish mission in St. Louis, said that there would be people that would literally jump over passages of Scripture like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 because they described a Messiah that would be suffering and would be wounded for our transgressions. They didn't want to talk about that. So they would just come to that passage, jump over it. But what is predicted here is there will come a day in the future when I'll do spectacular things for the nation Israel and I'm going to give them the truth. They will have the truth of God. People will be marveling over the fact that, you know, those people there, they're committed to the word of God. And he'll give his mercy to his people. Verse 20, unchanging love. That's hesed in Hebrew, mercy. God will give unchanging love. But he wraps it up by saying, this all has an Abrahamic connection because this will all be a fulfillment of Abrahamic promises to the people. He says, unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. Notice, we're going back to the days of Abraham. All of the promises concerning the land with all those dimensions that run from the Nile River across the northern part of Saudi Arabia and the northern part of Egypt, all the way to the Euphrates, up the coast of the Euphrates River, clear up into southern Turkey, swinging west and going over to the Mediterranean Sea. All of the land that was promised to Abraham and his seed in the book of Genesis, God says, I'm going to give it to you. There's coming a day when I'm going to do the miraculous and I'm going to gather Israel and I'm going to give him all of that land. What a time that's going to be. Look, We're living in dark times, and Israel was living in dark times. But Micah said, and this is the thing that's so interesting about Micah. He said, but our future, our future is bright. So he's trying to say to Israel, we have to keep our focus on our future. Where can we find a God like this? A God who can forgive all our sin, pardon all our iniquity, Set us free forever from guilt. Where can we find a God like this who can take us into the future and give us a wonderful utopia of dreams forever that will come true from Jesus Christ? And according to the Apostle Paul, we have a covenant relationship with God. We've been grafted in to a covenant relationship with God in National Israel's program. And Micah said, one of the things I know from having this relationship with God in a covenant relationship with God is the Lord will listen to me when I pray. So if Micah has done anything for us, we'll just take you back to Micah 7.7. Watch expectantly. Wait patiently. Pray fervently. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this powerful prophet. What an amazing man you raised up to give us an amazing book. Thank you for the privilege we've had in these last weeks of going through Micah. It'll be a joy one day just to get to meet him and 
just have some fellowship with him, Lord. But I pray we'd learn the lessons he learned. He was going through dark times, troubles. And there wasn't a lot of good things he was seeing in the land, but he kept his sights on the end of the tunnel and the light that was there. I pray that would be the same for us. In Jesus' name, amen.